On the 24th of April 2013, the eight-storey Rana Plaza building, located just outside Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh, collapsed. Most of the people in the building at the time were garment workers, employed by the five clothing factories it housed. Over 17 days of search and rescue, 1,134 people died, and more than 2,500, most of whom were women and children, were injured. Many left with debilitating injuries that have changed their lives forever. There had been multiple warnings that the building was unsafe, but employees were forced to go to work regardless. As the world marks the 10th anniversary of the disaster, we ask, what's changed when it comes to fast fashion and the people who make it? From the University of Aberdeen, I'm Laura Grant. Join me as we go into the headlines. Episode 7, The Price of Fast Fashion. I'm joined today by Professor Mohammed Azizul Islam, Chair in Accountancy at the University's Business School. Professor Pamela Abbott, Chair in Education and Director of the Centre for Global Development, and Fiona Gooch, Senior Policy Advisor at the trade justice charity Transform Trade. Welcome all. Thank you for having me. Hello. Hello. Azzy, some people may not appreciate the role that Bangladesh plays in the global fashion industry. Can you put it into context for us? The clothing and fashion industry in Bangladesh is the largest manufacturing sector and accounts for a substantial portion of country's total exports. Uh, the, the industry employs more than 4 million workers and more than 12 million workers are somehow dependent on this uh, industry. The industry consists of more than 5,000 garment uh, factories. Uh, the industry is a major source of employment in Bangladesh. The workforce is primarily made up of young workers with many being female, uh, women make up a significant proportion of the workforce, often comprising around 60% of the total workforce. The majority of workers are from rural areas with limited education and employment options, and often come from low-income backgrounds. The industry is a crucial contributor to Bangladesh's economy, accounting for more than 80% of the country's total export earnings, about 20% of country's gross domestic product. It has been a key driver of economic growth, foreign exchange earnings, and poverty reduction in the country. The industry exports garments to various countries around the world with major markets, including United States, European Union markets, European Union countries, Australia and Canada. Uh, many global brands uh, and retailers source from Bangladeshi clothing industry, including but not limited to H&M, Marks and Spencers, Walmart, Gap, Primark, Adidas, and Nike. The industry has faced several issues related to worker exploitation and poor working conditions, including low wages, long working hours, lack of job security, and unsafe working environments. Additionally, some workers, especially women, face challenges such as harassment, dis discrimination, and limited access to social protection. 
Uh, during COVID-19 uh, pandemic time, uh, COVID has had significant impact on the garment industry causing uh, various challenges and disruptions. Many global brands and retailers canceled uh, or suspended their orders that led uh, to a substantial decline in export orders for Bangladeshi garment factories, uh, resulting in reduced production uh, and revenue losses. This led to widespread job losses and income insecurity for millions of garment workers. Uh, the sector has now taken steps toward quick recovery during the post-pandemic period amid inflation. The garments, garment exports have increased more than 35% since the start of the pandemic, yet wages and employee numbers have stayed the same. Minimum wage in garment sector is still 8,000 Bangladeshi taka, which is around 65 pounds per month. And this has not changed since 2018, despite significant increase of export earnings. Due to inflation and rising prices, trade unions in Bangladesh are demanding that the minimum wage for garment workers be almost tripled to cover the basic cost of living for workers and their family. But so far, uh, with no success. Okay, now you mentioned quite a few brands in there and you also spoke about the scale of the industry. It's a highly competitive sector. Pamela, can you tell me a little bit about the, the dynamic that exists between the countries competing to be manufacturing hubs and attract foreign investment, the factories within those countries and the, the global buyers? Yes, I think it's important to recognise that this industry has grown since the 1980s and it's part of globalization for manufacturing or, or all products. The argument under neoliberalism that, that all products should be produced where there's the most favorable or the cheapest way of doing it. So we now have a global market. And as part of that, the West, the global North has exported um, its manufacturing of garments or particularly popular low price brands of, of garments to countries in the, the global south, in, into developing countries where there's much cheaper markets. And that's led to the development of what we call fast fashion. So prior to the 1980s, people had one or two new outfits a year. Now, young men and women, or even older men and women, expect to be able to buy garments all the time. Sometimes they only wear them once to one party, and then they're discarded. And so that's created this demand for fashion that mirrors what's on the catwalks. So that's part of it. Constant new fashion coming on to the market and produced at as lower price as possible. So the markets in, in the global south, um, not just Bangladesh, but China, Cambodia, and now Vietnam, which is competing very aggressively to attract buyers for, for ready-made garments and has already overtaken Bangladesh to become the second largest supplier, but also new growing markets, particularly in East Africa, Rwanda, 
just recently opened, I think, its first ready-made garment factory um, in what's called its free zone park. That's the park where things are just produced for export so that the companies producing don't have to pay local taxes. And Kenya and Ethiopia have, have growing markets. So all the manufacturers in, in the global south, particularly at the lower end, which is where Bangladesh produces for, are competing for the placement of orders. So you don't have a factory that produces for you, but the brands place each order separately. That doesn't mean they might not keep using the same factory, but there's no security. There's no knowing I've got a contract to produce shirts for Marks and Spencers for five years or anything like that. It, it's for one time. So the factories are in a very disadvantaged position because they're competing for the orders. So the buyers in, in the north have a range of markets that they can purchase goods for. So the prices keep getting driven down in real terms. So as he alluded to the failure to increase wages, and our research also has found that manufacturers weren't always prepared to increase the price they were prepared to pay when costs went up. So that means that workers often are the ones that bear the brunt of this. So that keeps their wages low. But the manufacturers also have little option but to accept the prices that they're, they're offered. So the consequence is we have this huge market in ready-made fashion to meet the demands that have been created for this type of, of garment and what's become customary of wearing something new to almost any, any event. The Rana Plaza disaster really thrust the subject of ethical fashion into the spotlight and there was international outcry about worker safety in the immediate aftermath of it. But Azzy, how much has really changed for workers in the 10 years since it happened? The world is observing 10th anniversary of the Rana Plaza disaster, the deadliest uh, industrial disaster in the history of globalization. The tragedy could be avoided and workers' lives could be saved if factory owners and managers did not force reluctant workers entering into the building already shown cracked outside during the start of the morning shift. The disaster brought to light the dangerous working conditions, low wages, exploitations, and slavery faced by many workers in the global fast fashion industry. In my own research, you know, I have been doing research over the past 18 years. Um, so I've been investigating corporate accountability in relation to the lives of those work in garment factories for global fashion retailers. Uh, what I found that despite all uh, the social audits or factory audits uh, suggested by global retailers or sometimes directly used by global retailers, social responsibility disclosures and their moral narratives in their course of conduct, uh, workers' economic and human rights have not improved, uh, while companies' revenues get bigger and factory owners get rich. Uh, in my prior research with, with colleagues, uh, we took a close look at the roles social audit or factory audits played uh, before and after 
Rana Plaza collapse. Uh, during this disaster, uh, social audits had been carried out, but failed to save workers from factory collapse. Though the retailers uh, sourcing from garment factories at Rana Plaza had social audit mechanisms in place, these did not protect the workers from factory owner who forced uh, them to work in an unsafe building. Our research has found uh, that global retailers and their suppliers often use social audits and other social responsibility disclosures as symbolic uh, and ritual strategies that help maintain existing inequalities, exploitations, rather than uh, protecting the welfare of the workers. So in fact, workers' conditions have not changed uh, over the past decade since uh, Rana Plaza disaster. So there was further research that came out in January of this year that showed the scale of the, the impact that the behavior of the fashion brands have in all of this. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I think uh, this is a great question. So I would say, you know, indeed the situations was intensified uh, by COVID-19. We conducted qualitative research uh, with interviews with workers, trade union members, civil society members, uh, development agencies, and even bodies based in Bangladesh uh, during COVID-19 pandemic to explore the conditions of women workers. We found that pandemic has led to job losses and increased people's financial burdens. This made it harder for women workers to support themselves and their families. There was an increase in forced labor and violence against women and factory. While exploitations of workers were present even after Rana Plaza collapse, the pandemic has just intensified the exploitations. As he's talked very well about the lack of progress, but in the same way as the factories are dependent on the purchases from the global north, Bangladesh as a country is dependent on the exports of the manufacturing for its growth, its economic growth, for improving the lives of people living in Bangladesh more quickly. And beyond that being the driver of economic growth, it needs the income it gets from exporting, and remember it's 80% of its exports are the ready-made garment industry, to purchase imports because the Bangladesh currency is not a convertible currency. So this means that it's very difficult for the Bangladesh government to enforce its legislation, to make demands, because this is, is potentially going to drive the buyers away. And this is why there's a need for governments in the global north to try and regulate the, the industry. It does seem that there's not much choice for people. There's not much choice for the workers. There's not much choice for the factories. And there's not much choice for the, the Bangladesh government. Yeah. Have there been any positive steps taken to, to change things for the better since your research was carried out? Some factories have improved their um, infrastructure and their um, what we call health and safety. But that has had little, if any, impact on the health, well-being or lives more generally of the the workers in the factories. Fiona, 
why does the government allow products subsidised by this form of modern day slavery or poor working conditions to be available to us as consumers to buy? Well, the answer is I'm not quite sure. I think that when the nature of the conversation is characterised by uh, an expectation that consumers should be able to understand which shops to go shopping in, actually that's not fair because our research that we conducted um, and was reported on together shows that most of the high street brands are named for having done unfair purchasing practices. So it's not like it's obvious which shop is better than another. That 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 doesn't exist. Um, and it's also very clear that the ways of evaluating whether or not working conditions are better or worse for workers or the environmental impacts of the clothes that we buy, you would need multiple PhDs to be able to make those kinds of comparisons. And essentially, it isn't fair on us as consumers that the government puts us in that position the government is completely aware that in some countries they are struggling to enforce their laws. That may be to do with resourcing. It may be to do with conflicts of interest. And essentially, the government is allowing our brands and retailers who serve us on the, on the UK high street and us as consumers to present us with clothes made by exploitation. It knows that and it's choosing to allow that kind of business model to continue rather than actually follow through with its commitments to um, the sustainable development goals, with its commitments to stopping modern day slavery. In practice, it isn't actually ensuring that the products we get to choose to buy aren't made in those conditions. And, and that is why we're pushing for um, a fashion watchdog. Do you think the impact on workers is something that people give enough consideration to when they're shopping on the high street on a Saturday afternoon? I think some do and are very concerned. And then there are others who don't, because understandably, we all have other worries that are foremost in our minds. And so that is not something that consumers are aware of. I think the other thing that... Um, I wanted to talk about since our joint report came out is that one of the valuable things that that joint report has done is it has stopped the narrative all being about, oh, the problem is over there. It's in that other country. They don't seem to be able to regulate their industry. And that is the narrative that the brands and the retailers like to tell us. Whereas obviously what our report shows is it's really clear that the actions of the brands and the retailers themselves their own staff make decisions that really, really make it difficult for a manufacturing business to organise production, deliver better working conditions and pay decent wages. You know, how these brands can actually stand by their CSR policies when it's really clear that they cancelled orders. That means that people aren't going to be paid for work that's already done in their name or be forcing the manufacturers to accept discounts. Well, a discount means being paid less than the price you'd previously agreed when you decided that you were going to make the product for the retailer. You, you know, so there's a real inconsistency within how the brands themselves operate. And they sort of speak slightly with a forked tongue with the buying department doing one activity. And, you know, the branding and the CSR people 
trying to tell a more positive narrative that isn't being supported by the purchasing department. So that's where there's been a positive change is that actually I think more people are very much aware that the purchasing practices of these brands and retailers is highly problematic. And also one of the other things that the report brought out is that even though the consequences of these purchasing decisions had such catastrophic impacts on the manufacturers, not a single one of these companies chose to take their retail or brand customer to court. And that tells us that the nature of that dynamic is perhaps characterized by fear. There's a, there's a huge power imbalance. And so although in some cases these practices are unlawful, they continue. And that means that the UK government must think again about how it chooses to regulate or enforce. This is not a Bangladesh problem. It's a global problem. And the suppliers in other countries that we've named experience exactly the same problem. So Bangladesh, if you like, is a case study of the problematic nature of this industry globally. When I went into a local shopping centre after I'd done this work, and it was after COVID-19, I was amazed that all the shops selling clothes I could see, apart from one, had been named in our research. So that shows the problem for the consumer. Where do you go? Well, that's it, isn't it? There's lots of different issues wrapped up in this. Fiona, you mentioned that Transform Trade has been pushing for the creation of a fashion watchdog. Can you tell me how that would operate and what tangible difference it would make? So we've been pushing for a fashion watchdog because we recognise that unless we deal with the problematic purchasing practices, which essentially disable improvements, we will never create an environment in which we can have better working conditions. We will never create an environment in which it's possible for some of the environmental improvements to happen. And so we need to fix the problems caused by brands and retailers in the UK. We've got to fix them in the UK. And it was recognised that when the um, food retailers, the supermarkets were applying similar very problematic practices, that these needed to stop because otherwise it would cause long-term consumer detriment. And the regulator set up in the food sector called the Groceries Code Adjudicator has worked spectacularly well. So in 2017, the suppliers responding to their annual survey said that 79% of them had experiences breach of the statutory fair purchasing code. And by 2021, that had dropped to um, 29%. So 79 to 29% significant improvement in relation to exactly the same types of problems we are witnessing in the fashion sector. So that is why we are making a proposal for a fashion watchdog to stop the systematic dumping of risks and excessive costs, completely disproportionate risks onto manufacturers. And we believe that a sister watchdog to the supermarket watchdog would make a significant improvement in stopping these bad practices. What this research also showed is that payment practices are not the only problem. So the government is currently consulting on prompt payment and how to enforce prompt payment in the UK. And the expectation is that businesses would pay within 60 days. But what our research shows is that it's really widespread, that the brands are paying 
much later than 60 days. And even then, our research showed that they were delaying payments by 90 days. So this is just one type of problematic purchasing practice. Obviously, it's a really big one. But what we need to say to the government, and we are saying to the government, is payment terms is only one problem. You must also look at cancellations. You must also look at discounts. It is this broader set of problems that results in the supplier, who ultimately becomes the manufacturer employing workers, not getting the money that they expected when they expected it. And those two crucial components are normally what you get out of an agreement. We all know that for businesses to work well, to be able to offer good quality jobs and improve their environmental impact, they need to be able to plan. And at the most basic level, that is not possible for most of the manufacturers all around the world selling into the shops, which ultimately sell onto us as UK consumers. So that's why we want a fashion watchdog. What can we as consumers do to support that? To any listeners of your programme, we would really welcome them writing to their MP and asking their MP to indicate on our website that they would be in support of setting up a fashion watchdog and our experience from setting up the groceries code adjudicator in the supermarket sector is that it hasn't changed the experience for us as consumers. And that's really important. We still get the same choice and availability, but the practices behind the scenes that we're not aware of have significantly improved towards the food suppliers. I think the Fiona has explained you no know, need for fashion was dog very well. And as you know that our last report released in January uh, 2023 reinforced uh, the need for fashion was dog. We surveyed uh, 1,000 factories in December 2021. It is uh, one of the biggest uh, surveys our team uh, has ever conducted. And we found uh, uh, that 51% of factories reported experiencing at least one of four uh, unfair practices, as Fiona mentioned, in the cancellation of order, price reduction, refusal to pay for goods dispersed or in production, and delayed payment of invoices. So I think uh, it has impacted negatively on, uh, on on the suppliers, particularly uh, they are struggling to pay minimum wages. So 20% of, of brands retailers are reported to be purchasing uh, from factories that struggle to pay minimum wages. And obviously this kind of unfair practices impacted on forced labor. So that's why it is important uh, for us to highlight the importance of the fashion watchdog, the recommendation we, we put forward in a collaborative research with Transform Trade and University of Aberdeen. And I'm afraid our time has come to an end. If you'd like to know more about the high street brands that were named in the report, you'll find a link to the research in the show notes for this podcast. Thank you, everyone, for joining me today and for sharing your thoughts. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, Laura. And thanks to you for listening. I'll be back soon with another dip into the headlines from the University of Aberdeen. But if you just can't wait, you know what to do by now. Visit abdn.ac.uk slash news to catch up on all the latest announcements.
This podcast was brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.